Mission 2, San Jose Avenue. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome, Heather Knight. We're on location on hallowed historic ground in San Francisco, outside the former Sticky Fingers Pop Brownie Warehouse, to announce a new journey for Total SF, our fun San Francisco project is adding a book club. Yes, we have partnered with the San Francisco Public Library and Green Apple Books, our favorite independent bookstore, although we love all independent bookstores, to um, start the Total SF Book Club. And we are here today with the author of our very first selection, Alia Voltz, author of Home Baked, My Mom, Marijuana, and the Stoning of San Francisco. Hi, thanks so much for having me. We're thrilled to have you here. Um, We're in a parklet. This is a first for our Total SF remotes. A lot of trucks going by with the truck noise, with a little bit of wind. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? Um, What do people have to look forward to? So my folks had the first high-volume cannabis edibles business in San Francisco. It started in the 1970s, and at that point in the disco years, they were distributing upwards of 10,000 brownies per month all over San Francisco into all the different subcultures of the day. And then when the AIDS crisis hit at the beginning of the 1980s, Sticky Fingers evolved into the very dawn of the medical marijuana movement. So Home Baked follows the evolution from party drug to palliative medicine and from dealer to healer through a very personal lens. And it's also an exploration of San Francisco history in the 1970s and 80s, which was a super exciting period to write about and a love letter to my home city. And an extremely fun read, I have to say. I really enjoyed this, and I I think it's just the perfect book for us to start out with. We are both loving the book, Peter and I. We've been texting each other our favorite parts, and it's such a great combination of family memoir, history of San Francisco, travelogue. Like, I really wish I could just drop myself into the Castro of, like, the 1970s right now. It would be so fun. Don't we all? (laughs) For me, the memoir was kind of an excuse to explore this period in San Francisco history that I find so exciting. I sometimes think of it as a Trojan horse, you know, to smuggle the history into your brain while still feeling like an adventurer. So we have a lot to talk about. Um, Really great discussion coming up. As we cop to people, we've already had the discussion. (laughs) So we hear a lot about your family. We hear a lot about just the process of this book. We talk a lot about history, which comes up in your book. So I just think this is the perfect first book for the book club. We'll be partnering with the San Francisco Public Library. Green Apple's kind of like our forever partner, but throughout this book club, we're going to be working with other bookstores. And we really encourage everybody, please support indie bookstores. If you're not getting a signed copy at Green Apple, uh, find your local bookstore, buy from them, support a couple small businesses while you're there. Our hashtags are Book Club SF and Total SF. Yeah, so the Public Library will host an event on May 20th, and we will be interviewing you some more. Some, I'm sure we will solicit questions from readers as they read the book, and um, that'll be really fun. Looking like it'll be virtual. Someday we will do these events in person again. Um, and you can learn more at sfchronicle.com slash totalsf. Alia Volt's coming up. I'm Peter Hartlob, here with Heather Knight, about to talk edibles and San Francisco history. This is Total SF. Thank you very much.
We're here at 20th and Alabama Streets outside a former Cannabis Brownie Warehouse to officially launch the Total SF Book Club. Welcome, Alia Volts. Thank you. So this neighborhood, I walked around here, I'm hauling the equipment out, and I'm guessing it's changed a little bit. I walked by <laughs> Flower Plus Water, not Flower and Water, Flower Plus Water, um, not the same place that you grew up, I'm guessing. Yeah, we don't like to spell out words anymore <laughs> in today's mission. Uh, it, ha- it has certainly changed dramatically, almost beyond recognition. This particular intersection at 20th and Alabama was pretty funky when my parents moved into it. It was very vibrant. Uh, It was a mostly Chicano neighborhood at the time. Um, There were also quite a lot of arts collectives and warehouses of the general ilk of what my parents were doing, not necessarily cannabis bakeries, but certainly artists and experimental lifestyles. Uh, It was really a a wild and uh, pretty bohemian place in those days. And you lived there for the first two years of your life in the warehouse. What what do you think of this neighborhood when you come back? Does it bring back any sort of memory for you? Well, I have a, uh, a deep attachment to the place, of course, and I have very early flashes of memory. Actually, my first memory, the first memory of my entire life is of playing in a puddle outside the warehouse close to here on a sunny day and having my mom say don't splash in that honey it might be pee (laughs) (laughs) always good advice in san francisco (laughs) yes don't play in puddles on the street in the mission but um it's stuck in my memory in a weird way because i felt so deeply invested in my environment i don't think i realized that san francisco was an external place it was so much a part of my of my identity from the beginning. So your book comes out um, during a pandemic, and this book is such a travelogue. It's a history tour. Um, It's a lot of things that I think would be great if you were in San Francisco bookstores and getting out and about. How did that change promoting this book, and how did that change just the release of this book? A complete transformation. I had a 20-city book tour planned. I was going to... was going to throw a huge party. We were looking at 200 people. I wanted to bring all the uh, folks that I interviewed, which were over 60 people, together because a lot of them hadn't seen each other. So we were going to have a big party. I had a Sylvester impersonator. It was, (laughs) yeah, it was. You have to do that sometime. I would love to. Um, Just for total SF purposes, where does one find a Sylvester impersonator? (laughs) Because we might need one at some point. One one speaks with the good people at the stud. (laughs) (laughs) Good tip. Yeah, so all of that, all of that, of course, was canceled. And it, we went on lockdown just a couple of weeks before my launch. So, of course, I was heartbroken. I spent about a week feeling sorry for myself. And then I thought you know, get up and do something anyway. And it ended up being really, uh, really unique and in a lot of ways positive because it so happens that my book resonates with a pandemic, which is not <laughs> not a situation I would have wanted and certainly not sure. one that I could have planned for. But because, uh, because the book does have to do with the AIDS pandemic 
and how a community came together during that time to care for one another when the government dropped the ball and really turned its back. That was very resonant. And, um, and also, it is, it is a romp, it is an upbeat, uh, aside, from, aside from that section of the book, it is um, a generally uplifting book about community. And so people really connected with it. And uh, because we were all at home and doing things over Zoom, I was able to, in a way, connect with a lot more people around the country in that, in that sense. So it has its positives and its negatives. And you're the very first Total SF book club book selection. So this so. is a silver lining. <laughs> I'm so honored. <laughs> and how did you get the seed for this book? You talked in the beginning about how you'd lay on this big bed or big couch and interview your mom and other folks. And I was wondering like, how you went from this just being childhood memories to actually wanting to write it down. And then also how you convinced your family to open up so much about it. It was a gradual process. I started interviewing for this book in around 2006, 2007. So that's quite a long time ago. And my mom had been ill. Uh, She was on chemotherapy for about a year. It was during that time as I was looking at this possibility of losing my mom, which fortunately did not happen, uh, but I was looking at it. And so I wanted to record my favorite stories of hers in her own voice. I thought someday I'm gonna wanna have these. But as I did, the, I did the interviews with her, there would be things that she couldn't answer. And the more we talked, the more questions I had. And so it spread exponentially. I started talking with other people in the business and then they led me to other people who had been customers. And it became pretty obvious that I had a unique project at that point. Going from there to finding the ultimate form of the story, um, took more than 10 years of working on it off and on in fits and starts. Mm -hmm. So it's been quite uh, an odyssey. (laughs) Yeah. And there are some tensions in terms of, obviously, they had to keep their business on the down low the whole time they were actually operating it. But then they opened up so much with you. And there was also some tensions between your parents that you didn't shy away from in the book. So what was it like, you know, to convince them that this is a good idea? <laughs> what do they think of the final product? And are they in jail right now <laughs> because of the book you wrote and all of the crimes that you've outlined? It's funny you should ask, Peter, because <laughs> um, I did research the statute of limitations before I, before I started uh, working seriously on this as a book, of course. And the heyday of Sticky Fingers was... 30, 40 and 30 years ago th- through the different phases. And my mom got out of the business in 1998. So the statute of limitations expired a long time ago. I knew there wouldn't be legal repercussions. My mom is an art teacher, however, and she works with at-risk youth in the Palm Springs area. She teaches art in Juvenile Hall. And so there have been some concerns, but in the end, the idea of sharing this story that we've all kept secret for so long was more compelling to everyone involved than the potential risks. Mm -hmm. I think you had a great line towards the end where the children that your mom works with kind of were asking her and she said something like, ask me no questions and I'll tell you no lies. (laughs) That's always a good Good sim- uh, slogan. Right. But of course, the secret is out now. <laughs> so for all, all over all this time, um, none of the people my mom works with 
had any idea about her past and now everyone is reading the book and talking <laughs> about it and so the cat's out of the bag but more importantly the United States has finally changed its relationship to cannabis and so people on both sides of the aisle at this point recognize that it has some medicinal potential and that the 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 demonization and prohibition of cannabis are ridiculous and outdated and that makes a big difference what did your parents tell you the first time they read the book (laughs) uh they both they both love it um not every part of it is easy for either of them um it's a it's a warts and all depiction but they are both artists themselves and have a lot of respect and love for the artistic process and so even when you know, my dad at, time has, at times has struggled with the way he's depicted in the book, he ultimately understands that the, the search for artistic truth is more important than anyone's feelings. And so he's behind it 100%. And uh, I think my mom is just enjoying herself immensely <laughs> right now. <laughs> That's great. There are very intimate sexual conversations and... and uh, uh, what they were thinking. I mean, I feel like I was in their head as they were thinking and going through this incredible change in San Francisco and change in their lives. So credit to you for for going there. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking this must have just been a lot like a therapy session. <laughs> there were there were several family therapy sessions. Uh, not literally. We didn't we did not involve a therapist. But yeah. there was a lot of work that happened on our relationships through the course of the book, which was not the intention. But having this creative project to do, and as I said, we're all artists. It it allowed for a certain kind of remove, so that we could talk about things that we hadn't been able to talk about by going at them directly. Um, But in the context of this book, we could. Mm -hmm. And it really made a big difference, especially in my relationship with my dad. He and I had been estranged for several years when I started this project, and I was very reluctant to talk with him and ask him some of these difficult questions at the beginning. Eventually, it was just necessary for the book. And the openness with which he welcomed my my interest uh, made a huge difference to me mm-hmm. uh, personally and we ended up digging through boxes together and really bonding over this and so my dad and I are now very close mm. and that happened because of this book which was a big surprise I think to both of us we'll be right back after this short break What are your earliest memories? How do you look back at San Francisco and all these things that are going on um, that, again, are in the book? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a funny thing about history because while it's happening, it's hard to understand the sweep of it. Um, I was, as I said, I felt very connected with what San Francisco was in, that, in those days. And even though we moved when I was two, we came back very often. My parents did monthly brownie runs and I always came and interacted with the community. And then my mom and I moved back when I was nine and I spent the rest of my childhood here. Um, I associate with those really early memories, this freedom, this creativity. We would go to, to deliver at 
to to Sylvester at Sylvester's house, and he just he embodied that kind of um, that the the freedom that people demanded to be who they were, and he was really a pioneer in 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 gender exploration, of course, he's recognized in that way now. Um, but that was going on all over the city. So I feel, I, I mean, I grew up without a clear sense of constraints around gender. I'm grateful for that. I grew up in an extremely creative and vibrant environment. So I always, I always felt like it was a, a wonderful way to grow up, which is not the traditional... Uh, not the traditional story, I think, from kids who grew up in drug families. And in my case, it, w- it, was, it was so colorful and vibrant and also wholesome in a way um, that yeah. I, I, really, uh, I really connected with that. And, and, and during the AIDS crisis, too, I, yeah. I don't want to like, give away spoilers or get into the, the, the last third of the we book all know too much. We all know what happened. We all know what happened. But you, you were making deliveries, seeing some things that, frankly, this whole city and Ronald Reagan and and a lot of people probably should have seen what you saw as a nine-year-old walking around and dropping things off uh, with your mother, who, I mean, the the part of the book where I wanted to cry the most is you've been through so much and there's um, some sadness and trials and, and, and then... Um, your mom telling you, you know where the good guys, mm. right? I mean, that to me is 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 an incredible arc for this. But what do you think about that? Just mm-hmm. you being nine years old and seeing all this, what did you think at the time? Mm-hmm. And what do you think now looking back, having such a, a close look at that, that time of the city? Yeah, uh, great question. It was heavy as can be. And of course I have some trauma around that. There's, there's no doubt there are things that I can't think about without crying. Um, and because we had grown up with such a strong connection to the LGBTQ plus community here through the Brownie business, we lost people who I had thought of as surrogate aunties and uncles and, and watching them waste and die in this this really, really terrible way. It was such a horrible, horrible way to die. And I should mention, I mean, there's there's specific passages where you're walking in a house and seeing someone at the very end yeah. of their life, and yeah. you describe it so poignantly. Right. It. I mean, it was um, it was heartbreaking. Of of course. At the same time, I 100% agree with you that we should have all known. We should have all seen that. And. I had this, there was this cognitive dissonance for me at that age because at the same time as I'm going with my mom on these deliveries and um, interacting with the suffering and also interacting with the tremendous compassion and love between people who are caring for one another, sometimes the dying caring for the dying, so much love and bravery in that, in that community. Um, and then I would go to school, uh, public elementary school, during the Nancy Reagan years, and there's drug awareness resistance education, the D.A.R.E. classes that many people will remember, which were just heavy with anti-pop propaganda. And I knew it was false. I could tell that it was false. And yet I had to stay quiet. I had to play along and answer the questions in the right way and keep all of that uh, intensity that I was experiencing outside of school a secret. Yeah, and, and not just um, not just anti pot, but I I was a teenager in that era, and I remember there was an undertone, or maybe it was more than an undertone, that you should be turning people in. That, like, yes, and it, you know, right. Um, 
it was more than an undertone. (laughs) People were encouraged and some did rat out their parents. It never occurred to me to do that. Um, Partly because I had such a positive experience with the communities that my parents were interacting with um, through cannabis. I knew that even though I, as a kid, I want to say right out, I didn't use cannabis as a child. It was just around. I understood that it was for adults. but I, but for adults, it was something that that people appreciated, that made them feel better, that eased their symptoms, and um, I, I just, I had such a positive experience with it that as I was getting this drug war messaging, um, I, I, I knew it was BS. Mm-hmm. And so, from a very young age, I had the sense that the that the government is propagandizing, that um, the, that authorities do not always have positive motivations. Uh, and those were strange lessons as a kid, of course, you know, but uh, I, don't, I don't regret that. And even, even though so much of what was going on in the community during the AIDS crisis was, was dark and was traumatic to be around, I also feel privileged to have been exposed to so much bravery and compassion at a young age, I, that taught me what compassion is mm-hmm. in a really visceral way. And what has it been like for you and your family to have this vindication that now California has legalized recreational cannabis? And it's like no big deal, you know, um, people <laughs> can sell any product under the sun, you know, related to, to marijuana and nobody really blinks. It, it is vindicating, of course, and it's about time. I'm still waiting for this to change at the federal level because people in other parts of the country are still getting busted, mostly people of color, and the drug war um, carries on. And it remains a, an essentially political and racist endeavor. So there's a lot left to do. Um, also, the way that the legalization process has, has come about it's very favorable to venture capitalism. It's very favorable to big money. It's not generally accessible to small to the small farmers who carried this movement when it was risky and illegal. And depending on where you are in the country, um, people who have drug-related convictions on their record in some places can't work in cannabis. And so the punishment mm-hmm. continues. So expungement programs are essential uh, and equity programs to help uplift and uh, give earlier access to legal cannabis for people who have been harmed by the drug war are essential and necessary steps to continue. Your acknowledgement section ends with a line, finally, at the end of the road, a blown kiss to the city that once was. What do you miss most about those times? And what do you think about modern day San Francisco? You get into this a little bit in the book, but I wanted to talk to you about it here. It's hard to talk about because it hurts. Um, I feel so, as I say, I feel so, I grew up with a feeling of being so enmeshed with with this city that there wasn't a, a great separation. And so to see it change so drastically um, hurts, you know. Um, the at, at at this point, you know, San Francisco every day seems to become more and more like 
one of those spaces like in an in an airport where everything is just sort of the same airport bars are the same the world over and the new bars that open in san francisco are the same as could be in any other city uh it's absolutely heartbreaking to see queer spaces close it's heartbreaking to see the city totally whitewashed where uh people of people of color and people of lower incomes and all the diversity that really made San Francisco an interesting place to be uh, can't afford to live here and so it's all money uh, all of that all of that is incredibly disappointing at the same time I do in more optimistic moments step back and take a broader historical view uh, which is that San Francisco has always been a place of drastic change and mass influxes so you know the gold rush of course brought hundreds of thousands of people out and then the summer of love there was a hundred thousand people out and and um the gay liberation movement another hundred thousand people and the techies are here now and those who were here before always resent that that's inevitable yeah um yeah. so I, mean, I i i think that we will keep changing <laughs> I, we think about it a lot, too. I mean, neither yeah. of us grew up in San Francisco. My, my grandparents immigrated to Eureka Valley um, when it was called Eureka Valley. Mm. And then in the 70s and 80s, a new group came in and, and my grandparents moved out. I don't remember them ever disparaging that their neighborhood had become, you know, a, a predominantly gay neighborhood because I think they recognize that these cycles happen. Mm -hmm. That said, you know, Heather and I celebrate the city so much. And I always feel like when we have someone on who's a native that they get to have a little extra say because, because <laughs> we didn't experience the things that were gone. We're just coming in and going, this is great. You yeah. Know? And so, um, there's a question in there somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wish that I'd been alive when you were a kid. Well, I was alive, but I wasn't in San Francisco. Um, I wish that, you know, I'd experienced some of what you saw as a child close up. It just sounds like so magical. It was quite a place. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've survived our serious questions, and now it's time for the lightning round. <laughs> Where is your favorite place in San Francisco to get a burrito? Oh, man, it was La Altenia, and that closed. That burned down. Oh. Um where now I like that little place on Church Street I can't even think of what it's called um, and I'll, you know I'll still go to Farolito which was right uh, I don't it was right across from the warehouse when I was very little that's an old school yeah. mission burrito what was your uh, childhood order from uh, Farolito oh gosh it was it was like rice beans Extra guacamole, extra cheese, extra <laughs> sour good. cream. It sounds disgusting. <laughs> it sounds like kind of like astronaut food. You know, yeah. It's a paste. That's okay, though. You, you know, know, your kids. kid. I bet you walked in there and they knew what you wanted and you had a connection with them. So. Basically cheese. <laughs> Anything with cheese. What's your favorite movie filmed in San Francisco? Oh, wow. Okay, well, there are a few, but I'm a huge fan of The Last Black Man yeah, in San Francisco, that and that's great. recent. That's easy to talk about. I feel like I feel like uh, Joe and Jimmy really captured that ache that we have as natives, and, and they're, they're both, they both native-born here. Um, they captured it so beautifully. I watched that entire film with a painful lump in my throat. Mm -hmm. it, just, it just didn't stop. Um, so that's lovely. 
I love Bullet too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the car chase. Everybody loves Bullet. <laughs> Yeah. Where's your favorite place in the city to get a stiff drink? Oh, God, do I miss getting stiff drinks at places in the city. Oh, honey. <laughs> um, that The golden triangle of Vesuvio and formerly Tosca, I don't know what to do about that. That's heartbreaking. And Specs. Mm-hmm. Those, it, it's, Those awesome. it's a place where even still not during the pandemic of course but but it it still feels like the city vesuvio and specs yeah. it's just yeah can't ta- wait to get back there tosca we should mention anyone who doesn't know classic bar uh, classic back room where like you know who knows who you're gonna meet back there and then it's just gone through we, we've been teased so much like <laughs> who's gonna take it over and they're gonna bring it back and then it's a group that has nothing to do with the city so uh, prayers for Tosca. Yeah, we actually <laughs> got married in the back room. Oh, oh wow! Or, well, that was the reception. It was that after party. <laughs> Where was the ceremony? At Jelly's, which is also no longer with us. Oh. That's a, a salsa club um, in Mission Bay that closed shortly thereafter. Yeah. Okay. What was the last book you read? I'm currently reading. Uh, this is Major by Shayla Lawson, it, and it's also up for the National Book Critics Circle Award uh, in the same category as I That's am. So cool. I had to read all the books, and it's wonderful. Great. Highly recommend. Do you make pot brownies? <laughs> Not often. <laughs> <laughs> Although I did, I did make a batch to celebrate the launch of Home Baked last year. I had to do something in my house, and when I went to open the all the old bakery equipment that we had, the mixers, and it's all the same stuff. And I went to open it, and there was a big bag of pot in the box, and I have no idea <laughs> where it came from or how, how old it was. It was like a couple of pounds. Wow. So I actually did use that. Did it taste okay? <laughs> yeah, it was fine. Cool. <laughs> we, we know from reading the book... Um, only do a quarter at first, yes. wait 45 <laughs> minutes. Um, this comes up in the book. And I love it, too, that um, because your your parents and, and their extended uh, pot brownie family, they, they printed and, and, and gave away the recipe um, the first time they left, that we all know how to make it, too, by reading your book. Right. So <laughs> that's, like, worth buying the book just for that. Sure. <laughs> I, I will say, I, th- I mean, I think it... It bears saying, and I'd be remiss if I didn't, that cannabis edibles have come a long way since the Sticky Fingers days. By compare, I mean, they were pretty mulchy. They kind of just dumped the shake <laughs> right in the batter. So it, it, ha- it would have sort of a cow pie slash cliff bar consistency <laughs> that you don't find in the nice infused <laughs> modern edibles. This was This was the Wild West. The other thing is that there was no way at the time in the 70s of measuring the content of THC and CBD wasn't even really hadn't even been discovered yet Um, so to be able to walk into a modern dispensary and tailor your experience to whatever medical concerns you have or the high you want or what you know whatever you're there for is is truly a gift that we did not have before (laughs) so my mom would say take a quarter and wait an hour before you eat more because you never really knew how strong it was going to be and people would overdo it okay i'm I'm really curious about this um i don't think it was in the book um what was your first concert 
first part question. And if it was not at the Cow Palace, what was your first concert and what was your first Cow Palace concert? So, okay, the the answer to the first concert is is both predictable and and surprising to me. Uh, my my mom actually took me to a Grateful Dead concert. Is, <laughs> I knew so you were going to say that. I know, and I know, and I know that you knew that I would say that. It's the most predictable answer. The thing about it that's kind of funny though is that my mom never liked the Dead. And neither did I. I was a kid. Um, Do you like them now? No. <laughs> God, no. Uh, I never have, never have, and I don't imagine I will. But she was, actually, she was selling to some of the people in their organization, and we got invited. So we went, and the whole, she was just like, why are we here? <laughs> Where was it? It was at the Shoreline. Uh, oh, yeah. That's so funny. I, I used to go to the Shoreline a lot. Uh, and then the second part, I don't think I have been to a concert at the Cow Palace. I went to the Grand National Rodeo (laughs) as a kid. I remember that. Well, that's better. Is it? I don't know. (laughs) Last question. What is something you always make sure to squeeze into your busy day? Mm. I have a very ridiculous extra fluffy bunny rabbit. And I'm sure to squeeze him on any given day. What's his name? Rye. Oh, cute. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And we're so excited to be on this Total SF Book Club adventure with you. This is really a pleasure. Thank you. And the paperback edition of Home Baked is on sale for 20. Of course. (laughs) Just like the Grateful Dead, I mean. (laughs) I couldn't Uh, resist. Signed copies at Green Apple Books. And our big event is on 520 with the um, SF Public Library. We're super excited about that. Engage with us on Twitter as you read the book with the hashtag TotalSF and BookClubSF. And people can sign up at sfchronicle.com slash TotalSF. All the information's there. Great. Looking forward to it. Thank you so much. I think it's just the perfect fit for our first book club book and just really glad that we could get together and do it. I feel so fortunate to share this book with you and and with the rest of the city. Thank you. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to Heather Knight and our guest, Alia Voltz. Total SF is a production of the Chronicle. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community and Cable Car Bell Ringing by eight-time champion Byron Cobb. Support Total SF in the newsroom that creates it by treating yourself to a digital Chronicle edition at sfchronicle.com slash pod.